Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm joined by my sometimes co-host, the mm -hmm. extremely talented and lovely Laura Nozika. Say hi, Laura. Hi, Laura. Or hello, Michael. <laughs> well, thank you, Laura. Michael Carlin. Uh, the Michael Carlin. Or the Mr. the Mr. Carlin, <laughs> not to be confused with George, which I bet Kelly's got a couple of good stories about George. You Carlin are you are hijacking, it. you are hijacking my opening, Laura. <laughs> right, right from the start. <laughs> and today we're here to speak with a very special guest uh, who is Kelly Leonard. Kelly is the executive director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at the Second City. He began his Second City career in 1988, eventually becoming producer of Second City in 1992 and executive vice president through 2015. He's produced hundreds of original reviews with talent such as Stephen Colbert, Tina Fey, Keegan-Michael Key, Seth Meyers, Amy Poehler, his book, Yes And, received rave reviews in Vanity Fair and Washington Post. I cannot say the same about my books. Here today to talk about his book and career is Kelly Leonard. Kelly, welcome to Unquirking Story. Thanks for having me. Well, Kelly, we, uh, we always ask uh, our guests the same opening question, and we will uh, put you in the hot seat as well, which is, uh, Kelly, tell me, where does your story begin? Uh, my story begins... Uh... Um, when I was born, I'm the youngest of six boys. And my dad uh, was, uh, when I was born, a, a, he had a radio show and a TV show in Boston. Um, and his radio station went rock. So he did not want to stay there because he, he had a talk show. He sent his tapes all over the country, sent one to Chicago. They flew him in to do a week at WGN Radio here in Chicago. Uh, and they hired him on the spot. And so uh, he came in and, and, and took over there. He was, he was on WGN for 30 plus years. Um, but I got to grow up here in Chicago and because my dad, he reviewed theater, he reviewed movies and he interviewed celebrities. So I had this really interesting thing of being very celebrity adjacent. So when I wrote my thesis, I was writing my thesis in college on the beat generation. My dad happened to interview Allen Ginsberg. So I went with him to go meet. Allen Ginsberg, who I then had coffee with for like three hours and got so much great stuff from. 
um, met Bob Geldof just after uh, you know the the big concert and and um, uh, and when, and Sting and you know and my some of my favorite authors like Don DeLillo and and so this 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 really mat and then you know going to all kinds of theater and and, and concerts I, I I got to see at George Harrison after the concert for Bangladesh did a tour um, all my brothers we all went. Uh, I don't know how old I was. I know Ravi Shankar opened with like a half hour of sitar and I believe I fell asleep, which I think is warranted. <laughs> um, and got to see the uh, Wings Over America tour in 1976. Paul McCartney went backstage, got to meet Paul who gave me a wings necklace. So really magical childhood. And then when I was graduating college, I, I, mean, I, mean, I might have only, you know, one of the only fathers in America when I said I wanted to get in the theater, he was really excited because every other kid it, it, you know his other sons were things like bankers you know and <laughs> architects and he and but he he had a love of show business and i ended up getting this gig as a dishwasher dishwasher in 1988 at second city uh fun fact the other guy who was hired the same week as i was to wash dishes was the film uh director john favreau and no I, kidding and we both had mullets and there's photographic <laughs> evidence of this that my wife holds um and she's not afraid to use it if, if it needs to be used uh but yeah, and then and then so I then also you know ended up in a place where I was celebrity adjacent. I mean, they weren't celebrities when they were there, um, but they they became my friends and and people like Tina Fey and Amy Poehler and Keegan Michael Key and others. Um, so it, it's it's been a really interesting story, and there's a lot more to it. But I all I often sort of craft the tale there because I think it's it's meaningful. I've seen celebrities up close. They are no happier or sadder than regular human beings. Um, it, it is individual to individual. Um, but what I do understand uh, is the ability to craft a, a, a life that is meaningful and happy and purposeful, I think faces distinct challenges when you're in the public eye. Yeah. Um, and and that's, that's good lessons to learn in terms of um, when all eyes are on you, how do you want to behave? I, I, I can't let it go, you meeting Bob Geldof, because yeah. I, I needed to know, when, when you met him, did he have eyebrows? Well, yes, he did, or they were, or they were fake or painted on. Um, and this, of course, is, you know, he's Sir Bob Geldof at this time, um, uh, and it was before all the weirdness happened with his wife and the, the guy from, uh, what was the band that um, he killed himself? Oh, um, uh, that was um, Michael. You, yeah, you two covers one of their songs when they do yeah. "With or Without You." Um, gosh, it'll come to me in a minute. Yeah, um, yeah. But that got, it got very complicated and seeming. And again, this is this is. I remember meeting Johnny Carson. So we he was do, uh, um, he was doing a, a thing a spot at a benefit that my dad was emceeing, and uh, Carson couldn't have been nicer to me and 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 very attentive. But then I sort of saw him like pull away. And it was like, oh, that's interesting. I remember talking to my dad about it. My dad goes, yeah, but what I understand is that like after the show, uh, and this is when he was on the air, he goes home, puts on headphones and drums and doesn't like talk to his family. <laughs> and I'm like, wow. So the, the, you know, the, the, the idea for me is like, I, I, I think I've had success in my career. I'm a, I'm a happy person. My life hasn't been easy necessarily, but I'm a happy person, happily married. Um, and, um, uh, and I know other people who have done tremendously well for themselves and they're not happy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Ellie, you mentioned um, happily married. I think I read somewhere that your wife teaches, is it comedy writing at Columbia? Uh, so I can only imagine what the dinner conversation is. Yeah, so, like. so uh, my wife, Ann Libra, uh, actually hired me to work in the box office at Second City. So I, I was <laughs> doing dishes and I left the theater and came back and we were, we were uh, getting married to other people at the time. Um, but that's, 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 and she actually caught the bouquet at my first wedding, ironically. Oh uh, but Anne is a long time. Uh, she directed Stephen Colbert's uh, one man show uh, when they, she was Colbert's roommate at Northwestern. Um, so she's root, as rooted in the Second City community as I, I am. I became a producer and a writer and she was a director, teacher and a writer. But then, yeah, she, she was working at Columbia College and she and the late great Sheldon Patinkin uh, convinced them to create a program called Comedy Studies. Uh, which was like a, a, you get credit for studying at Second City, like a junior, senior year abroad. One of the first uh, students they had was A.D. Bryant for that. Uh, and then um, a few years after that had been running, she convinced them to actually create a comedy major. So my wife is a tenured professor um, of comedy, uh, writing and performance at Columbia College, where she leads uh, the first ever BA in comedy writing and performance. There's, you know, a few hundred comedy majors. She's every parent's nightmare. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, so tell me about like dishwashing at, at Second City. Um, kind oh, of nightmare. You, tell me why. Uh, well, the back bar in those days was filled with alcoholics and sociopaths, and I'm I'm not kidding you. And then like Joel Murray was different? in the cast. Is it any different today? It's different. It's different. It is different. <laughs> and I, I can, actually I can bring that bring that around an interesting point. Um, so no, I mean people are killing themselves. You know, I mean it was like in in you know I knew Farley and I I watched that happen and you know and uh, John Belushi dies and all that stuff and so it was very dysfunctional and like also you could smoke in the theater in those days and we didn't have like a dishwashing machine it was these brushes that you had to answer so your hands would be raw you'd be reeking of smoke it was like it, it, the biggest contrast was that was happening and then Mike Myers and Bonnie Hunt were improvising on the main stage Jane Lynch in the ETC and you're seeing this incredible what appears to be magic it's 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 better than that's a practice so anyone can do it but it was it was amazing um i remember mark maron uh came to he was doing a a, a talk he had a book coming up and we we, we have a, a number of venues we have the two resident stages where the two main companies are and then we have this thing called up comedy club mark was up there doing an event and he was walking with me and he was like look you arranged your alumni pictures chronologically and so i'm looking at like Belushi died for his art, you know, and, and all, all these other people who like seemingly died for their art. And, and then he goes, and then I'm getting to people who I know, like Stephen Colbert and Tina Fey, and they didn't need to die for their art. And their art is just as good as anyone else's. And he had this sort of epiphany in the moment of like, we didn't need that, that mythology that we all hung on to that I, I did my thesis on the beats. Of course, I like believed in like poets who, you know, take it too far and all that. Uh, and that was a mythology I walked into at Second City and needed to be part of the group that changed it because it wasn't healthy, it wasn't correct. Um, and it's, it just feeds into that terrible notion that somehow creative people are magic. And, and a lot of them like to do that because it makes them feel special. But the reality is all humans have the ability to be creative. And if they are just not like um, held down and if they're given space to create and some mentorship and practice and all those things, people can do amazing things. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I love what you said there because I think there is this, you know, there's this view that comics, like most comics, are tortured souls. Um, and and you, know, you, you, you hear Belushi and you hear those stories, but um, there's a lot of positivity that comes out of comedy. Um, well, there really is. And I, I, think, yeah. I think, like, true natural laughter, true comedy 
in a very sober setting is probably one of the most healing things that there is. Right. I mean, I, there's a line I use often, which is no one got in the comedy because they're well-adjusted. Um, but I think you could actually say that about the human condition. I mean, I, like, like I, I, I often ask when I have people on my podcast, I'm like, would you ever describe a place that you have worked, and I'll ask it of you too, as um, functional as sure. opposed to dysfunctional? I have yet to find someone who's like, oh no, I've worked in a place that's highly functional completely. <laughs> and we always, especially, I mean, I, I started my career in interactive marketing in the mid nineties. Well, there, there you have it. There was, there was nothing functional about oh, it. We were just making shit up about. as we went along. So, but then, but your other point, you know, is like, you know, um, the shortest distance between two people is a laugh, you know, and we, we as human beings crave connection. You know, there's the famous Grant study out of Harvard. They studied uh, men going back 80 years. Some of them are still alive. And they found one thing that determined happiness, and that was connection, social connection between human beings. Um, and so laughter, of course, is that on steroids. Um, and then you have all the studies around lowering blood pressure. Uh, you, people laugh, uh, live longer. There, there's, there's a whole cascading of, of this stuff. So like anything, you know, um, Nir Eyal is a, um, a technologist uh, who wrote a great book, and someone Someone said, he didn't say it, but it's in his book, is that uh, if it, it's not a superpower unless it can be used for evil. So everything I'm going to talk to you about, whether it's the yes and principle of improvisation or, or the secret power of comedy is like, yes, no, that's great. And by the way, it can also be used. So the great example with comedy is, yes, it can in-group a bunch of people like, oh, we all think alike, but you could all be thinking alike in a very Trumpian way. I mean, Trump uses comedy as a way to uh, minimalize and depersonalize segments of the community that are not his group in front of him. And they're, they're laughing with him because they, they're, like, they're feeling that power of connection with each other. So it definitely, it, it, it can be used for, for good as what we try to do at Second City and, and we see it used for bad. Well, when well, Mike tells me a joke, my blood pressure goes down all the time because um, our very own Michael Carlin, Kelly, likes to do uh, stand-up. Ah. Okay. I, I, I've been known to take the stage from time to time, but this is not about me, Laura, but I do appreciate the plug. Um, you know, one of the things, you know, Kelly, that Laura and I do for a living, you know, we go into groups of strangers and we have to engage them in conversation about, you know, it could be about, you know, a medical device. It could be about a medical condition or it could be about credit cards. Yep. And one of the things that I've found, um, you know, over the course of kind of doing this, you know, thousands of these types of interviews is, if I could bring in humor to the to the session, if I can get people laughing, that immediately breaks down a barrier and and makes people more vulnerable um, or more comfortable being more vulnerable. You know, for example, one time I had to go into a, a group of uh, guys who don't know each other. They all suffer from enlarged prostate. It's 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 a it's a thing, right? We're unfortunately we're all going to get one. Mm -hmm. um, and you know they, it's it's an embarrassing condition because it yep. affects your relationships with your spouse, yourself. You're getting up to pee five times a night, and these guys were very kind of like closed off. So I just started making them laugh, mm -hmm. and the minute they started laughing, they would then just start opening up. And like the client saw like this, it was like transformative, and that was like a big lesson for me. So what I'm curious about from you is like what is what is that? What is that secret to laughter um how, how is it why is it so powerful uh i can answer this but before i do we got hired by a company uh that was it, it was uh menstrual products and we created a comedy show called period pieces 
which was very much along those lines of, of ways to sort of demystify these things that can be taboo to talk about in public. Um, uh, so interestingly, one of the one of the programs my wife and I did for four years at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business was a thing called the Second Science Project that looked at behavioral science through the lens of improvisation and vice versa. Um, and uh, Anne ties this into some of her uh, lecturing she does on the differences between improv comedy and stand-up. So we just mentioned stand-up. So one of the things about improv comedy is you're going for suggestions, your perspective taking from the audience. Interestingly, with stand-ups, what they need to do in the first five minutes of their act is perspective giving. They have to make the audience understand who they are. And most of our most successful stand-ups and the stand-ups you like start with the things that are wrong with them. So start thinking about it. Patton Oswalt's a schlub. Amy Schumer is a slut. Just, you can go down the list. And that, and that is a signature part of, and, and, and this now reveals itself in some of the leadership uh, uh, research and evidence, which is, I don't want to hear your wild successes. I want to hear a fiasco, a struggle. Where, 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 when were you down? Because you got out of it and you're sitting up there in that space. So I'm going to relate to you through probably a pain point. And as, as we know, there's many different theories of comedy, but they all include pain. Uh, some semblance, and it could be very minor pain of like, oh, it's a bad pun, to very onion on nine twelve, you know, like uh, fi finding stuff that's ed edgy as hell and great. Um, so, and 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 Anne's theory, she, she's actually coming out with a book soon about this, but that it's like a mixing board um, with with pain and and distance. Uh, and distance can mean, you know, time and then recognition, like what, what, what do we see and what do we understand? So you're always shifting that mixing board around. And in part because every one of these rooms that you go into, the context will be different. So whether it's men who don't know each other, men who do know each other, whether they're all in the same industry. And I learned this like when we started producing shows on cruise ships where no one has anything in common. The one thing they have in common is they're on that cruise ship. So when our shows weren't hitting, we're like, we just need to make fun of the cruise ship experience. And then suddenly we were off to the races and we were on Norwegian cruise line ships for 13 years. Um, but that's, that's exclusively because we've sort of figured out what is the thing that all these people can share as, as a laugh. And again, a lot of it was like the, the, the horrific lines to get to the chocolate buffet. You know, or when you flush the toilet, how it's like so. I don't know if you've been on a cruise ship, but like it's the suction is like it could take your a human head down. <laughs> True story. Um, and, and and we we do that stuff. So this the, these ideas of of recognition and self disclosure, which which I think the old model of leadership um, has chewed and sort of felt like oh I need to be seen as as infallible uh, the the great man theory, which is always bullshit. You know, because the 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 research from Drucker on is all about no, you need knowledge workers and collaborative teams, and like no one does any of this stuff alone. Um, and the literature now is very clear on this idea of needing psychological safety, needing a safe space for dissent and failure. If you're going to be creative, I mean, it's ridiculous. Like you say to a leader, like, do you want creativity? And they're like, well, absolutely. It's like, okay, wh where are the safe spaces to fail in the organization? Well, we can't have failure. It's like, then guess what? You can't have creativity. And you right. certainly, if you're not gonna have creativity, guess what else is not gonna happen? You're not gonna have innovation. It's just that that's that's not how that works. It's a scientific method, but like, like read up on it. And so great organizations, you know, Nike or, or Pixar or whatever, they have built in this stuff, a high degree of experimentation. You get real serious about it, like, we're all about yes and at the beginning of the process. We're not doing that the final three weeks of the show. We are knowing the fuck out of that thing. 
we are editing, 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 and crafting. But we couldn't have gotten to that place if we didn't do sort of radical acceptance of wild ideas at the beginning. Right. And I think, you know, with, with new product innovation inside, you know, companies, it's, it's the same thing. But mm -hmm. so many of them want to, to, to rush to validation quickly, yeah. you know, versus let these ideas kind of live and breathe and, and sort of build upon each other. And this is where the Enrons happen, you know, where the Boeings happen is then everyone becomes afraid to um, admit that something's wrong. And then they that starts to cascade itself. Um, and again, just look at the look at the the places that are doing. It's interesting, you know, Netflix is so famous for that HR document um, that got put together and, and having this environment, um, an incredible environment of uh, uh, culture that produced so much, you know, great work. And you look at the sort of downfall that they're having right now, and you you can't help but think like, oh, the woman who put that thing together, she left like seven years ago, and like who's there running things now? And then and then you, as some of the stories I've read, and I'm not an insider on this, but yeah, it got dysfunctional. And guess what? The business suffered. Now there's other reasons, of course, in terms of market forces and what's going on in the, in, in the industry. But I, you know, culture is there, culture is there whether you are tending to it or not. And you probably need to be tending to it. Kelly, so much of what you said with regard to um, laughter and improv with what Mike and I do for a living with interviewing all kinds of people all over the, the globe most of the time, um, and particularly in some really sensitive areas like healthcare. And I know that you have a um, your project, the Second Science um, Project is near and dear to your heart yeah. because of things you went through with your mom and your family as well. But we never know what we're walking into um, when we are talking with some of these patients who have gone through some horrible things and they're so open about it to a point. And sometimes we have to say something that um, is kind of, like you said, self-disclosure. Um, yeah. We talk a lot about empathy and all kinds of areas of, of work, um, but it comes into play with us as well. And so we're always shifting and pivoting because we never know what we're going to hear and how do we get this person to open up. So a lot of times, um, at least for me, and I'm sure Mike has done it too, where we actually have to share something about ourselves where we say, you know, I get you, I've been through something like that before. Um, so, yeah. so yeah, these improv techniques, um, maybe come naturally to some of us because we, we have to do it to make our, our jobs work and get what we need from, from our respondents. But, um, you know, definitely, um, I think we can relate to, to what you're saying. Yeah, they're not natural to everyone. Um, and, and in, you know, a lot of the work that we did at Second Science was based on uh, Nicholas Eppley's research, who's a very well-read social scientist. And, and one of the things, his major area that he, he does work in is this area of self-disclosure, which is which what, he, what they discovered is that human beings are reluctant to share even sort of minor details of themselves because they don't think people care. Um, and so when we found this out, um, we actually developed an exercise called Universal Unique and, and developed it. And what, what we do is we pair people and we say to the first person, okay, you're going to describe universally something like grocery shopping. How do people grocery shop? And you can use the term you, like you do this, you get in the car, you, and just do that for about a minute. And then we stop it and we say, okay, now take for a moment and reflect on how you personally grocery shop. And now using the I statement, talk about what that is. I just led, I just led this um, uh, exercise at a workshop in Sonoma a couple of weeks ago. People were like, I learned so much about them. And I was, they were just talking about grocery shopping. I'm like, yeah, because 
we're all weirdos. We all have tells about the things that we do. Um, and so speaking about the health context, when our, our daughter got diagnosed with cancer and we were in the hospital room and literally you're seeing all these different nurses and doctors and they're changing constantly and that, and we would employ this. So when someone would walk in, a new person would walk in and say, uh, I'm Kelly, this is Anne. Our daughter is Eleanor. She also goes by Nora. Uh, we've worked at Second City for over 30 years, and we have a Bernie's mountain dog named Benchley, who's an asshole. Who are you? <laughs> and in doing so, we, we had this incredible network of people who knew us so that if we're home and there's a problem, we call, they would literally be like, if it's you calling that there's a problem, come in. Cause you're not going to be, you're not the panicky parents. We know the panicky parents, you know, and, and then, and otherwise it would, it would little moments of joy that they'd find because they knew Nora like was loving watching Grey's Anatomy. So like literally like nurses would come in and like watch episodes with her and then gossip about her or whatever. So it was a very powerful use of that um, a simple, simple exercise uh, that, that, and, and as you know, probably that, that, that the more you want a robust relationship with someone, you amp that self-disclosure up. You, you, you do. And, and if someone is not willing to do that, then that's not a relationship that's ever going to be one that is going to go deep. Yeah. You know, I'm curious, we, we kind of been talking about this in a, like more of a professional setting, but I'm really curious about interpersonal, interpersonal settings. You know, I'm thinking yeah. couples, I'm thinking sure. like pre-marriage counseling or post-marriage counseling. What's the role of, of sort of using improvisational techniques in our, in our sort of romantic and loving relationships? I've had a number of folks tr wanting to partner with us on like improv for couples stuff. We, we, we never found the right way to pull the trigger. Um, but it's, it's yeah, so many people find their mates in these classes. I mean, it's, it's a terrifying number. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not saying that's healthier. Right. Um, but what I, what I, I will say this is here's a couple of things that improv does. You practice looking at each other in the eye. Uh, you practice listening, listening to the end of sentences, which we don't do. Um, uh, you learn one of the core rules is make your par partner look good. So if, if it, you know, and what we know about there, there's, it's funny. I just uh, uh, interviewed a scientist uh, who studies relationships. That's his primary mode, uh, his field. Um, and in couples research, it's the healthiest uh, uh, marriages are when each partner thinks they got the better deal. And I think that that when you come from an improv mindset, which is that the, the hero apart from you, you're there to like take care of and, and ju you just do it. And because and, and the, they're playing by that rule as well, that I think that feeds into that mentality. I mean, I certainly feel like that in my relationship, like I got the better part of the deal. Yeah. Well, and, and now uh, maybe she'll listen to this and, uh, you know, hear you say that, but I'm sure she probably heard knows. Me say that before. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I think you're right. I mean, if, if, if you're using, if you're thinking about improv and, you know, I have very basic knowledge of, mm -hmm. of playing some improv games, but you really have to listen, um, mm -hmm. and not process everything that is coming right at you to think about what you're going to say or how you're going to react. You really have to stay in the moment and listen to somebody and then, you know, show your vulnerabilities too. Yeah. Um, and I've heard, you know, people say that there's nothing more sexy than a vulnerable man. Oh, um, totally. And the, the power of being seen and heard. Did I say that, Mike? I, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is like, like we, as human beings, we crave, in craving connection, we crave being seen and heard. 
And that that's like in many ways that there's so much research around like raises and 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 that that that's not necessarily an effective way of keeping people. But if you can recognize someone publicly for their good work and say it in an authentic manner, that means so much. Um, when people I admire say nice things about my work, it's it's just as powerful as when people I admire are upset with me, which is the other way. I, I like it's so easy to go into the shame brain when you've let down someone or think you've let down someone. So so th these polarities exist, and so recognizing that, especially in our relationships, long long relationships which need tending to, like you you can't. You can't stop. You have to allow that relationship to evolve and always sort of be tended to and check yourself. Um, that's hard work. Um, so I, I definitely feel like a, an improv practice, which understands that it can apply in all forms of your life, um, then will allow you to, to have that kind of intention and attention uh, that you need to successfully navigate all your relationships, but in particular, the ones with your family members. Or did you have a question? Well, I have this burning question about, well, some of us here are beyond that half century mark. Not all of us yet. Uh, yeah, same here. Okay. Um, but Kelly, tell us about your year of the pivot, if I heard that correctly. Um, uh, yeah, so I got interviewed about, well, th this was, I've, I've talked about this in a number of ways, um, but uh, essentially COVID, of course, uh, shut down Second City. Um, uh, and that was the live theaters and all that stuff. But in the corporate division, we had, we had all these like gigs booked. Um, and luckily, about six weeks before all this went down, I got in touch with Zoom and was talking to them about, hey, could we collaborate on potentially some long distance virtual workshops, things. So I was already working on, on this. And a friend of mine who used to do executive education at Yale uh, was now uh, the head of learning for a large soft drink company. Uh, so one, one of the big two. And she said, hey, are, are you doing virtual workshops? And I just said, yes, I, we hadn't done one yet. And I was like, yes. And she's like, you do stuff on resiliency, right? Because because my people are like out of their minds, they're suffering. I said, yep. Um, that was and yes so, and for you, right? That was yeah, yes and. Yeah, totally yes right. and. And, and, and then, you know, so, so, I mean, I was bullshitting a little bit, but then I went back to the team and like, look, we, we're, we've also produced television, so we, we can produce media, like we know how to do that. Um, and I remember um, I was working with my team and, and we were looking at the exercises and trying to figure out ones that would work well here. And I yelled downstairs to Anne, I said, do you have anything? in resilience. And she goes, actually, I did. I just created an exercise for, and it was at the school and it's called wish. And so we had everyone take a piece of paper and they make three columns. Column A, they write down something that they wished they could do that they couldn't because of COVID. So I would write down swimming in salt water. In the second column, you write down the emotion you think you'd feel if you got that wish. So I wrote down refreshed. And in the third column, you write down something you could do right now to experience that emotion. And I was like, oh, work out put water on my face. And the revelation here is like, we have no control over these circumstances. The one thing we have agency over is our emotional reaction to them, you know, and our intellectual reaction to them. So if we are, and if we can find practices to bolster our ability not to move into the 
you know, the, the, the swamp of our thinking, you know, we can go into the pond of our thinking. Um, and, and this, re this requires a, a pivot for many of us. Um, there's a, I, I interviewed a guest once, we were talking about how we like, we hated the term work-life balance. And, and she came up with a term I liked much better, which was work-life sway. And I feel like that's where we landed, that now what we have to recognize is there is no such thing as work-life balance. Work is going on, life is going on at the same time. So can we have the ability to sway in and out when we need to have an emphasis in one way or the other? Um, and, I, and I think this, like, the COVID times taught us this, um, but it was always largely true anyway. Um, and hopefully in these sort of new hybrid environments, they, they can, you know, maybe foster better balance, better sway than, than existed before. But yeah, there's, I mean, there was lots of pivots that, that, that happened, you know, along the way, and they always do. Um, I want to ask you some questions about uh, the book, Kelly. Yes. And um, yeah. before I do, I just want to remind our uh, participants who are listening in, um, you can use the Q&A uh, feature if you want to ask some questions. I, I see Anna has her hand up. Uh, feel free to use uh, the Q&A feature to ask any questions you like, and we will address them at the end of our session today. Um, so Kelly, the book, Yes, And. Um, was this your first book? Yeah, yep. Okay, what, what prompted you to, uh, to kind of take your knowledge and put it into book form? So our owner, we had this big 50th anniversary uh, gala, and it was very successful. And we had all the alumni, all the famous alumni came in. Um, and there was a woman who, um, helped on that and did a lot of like the party planning and she was really good with that. Um, and then her owner decided to make her president of the company, um, which was, which was not a popular decision, uh, among the rest of us who worked there. Um, uh, lovely human, not, not a good fit. Uh, and, uh, she somehow during her time, she was only in the job for a year. She got a book deal, uh, with Harper Collins to write a book about, how Second City takes its improv practices in the business, but she didn't know how we really did that. So she had a series of ghostwriters coming for her that weren't working out. And then she got fired. And our owner's like, well, would you guys, and Tom Yorton, who I co-wrote the book with, ran the corporate division at that time, and I was running the theater. He's like, would you want to write this book? Could you fly to New York and meet with the publisher? So we got on a plane, basically sort of decided what our pitch would look like. Um, and went in and met with uh, Hollis Heimbach at HarperCollins. And I will say the first thing we did was make her laugh. Uh, so that was like, like, and we said, we said, we completely bullshitted this on the plane. So we're just going to be completely honest with you. This is where it came from. But we actually think it's pretty good. And she agreed. Uh, and she, she had us finish out the deal. Uh, and so it took about a year and a half. But it was a really, it was, a, again, another pivotal experience for me because what I realized in writing the book and then like going on book tour and talking about it was that I had come to the natural end of the first part of my career in terms of producing these shows and, and having to work, you know, late nights and, and then get up there early in the morning. And just like, I was like, and, and, and I, I was, I was kind of done with it. And I was like, I think there's other things I can do uh, and stay in this field. And so book gets published. We do book tour. I tender my resignation. And luckily enough, you know, the, the owners of Second City at the time knew I was unhirable anywhere else. So they gave me a year uh, contract to see if I could build a bridge in or build a bridge out. And part of me building a bridge back in was that deal that I made at the University of Chicago um, and, then, and then started hosting the podcast and started creating other kinds of partnerships and content. And I was like, oh, 
I'm sort of adjacent now to my previous expertise. Guess what? There's research that shows if you stay too long doing the thing you're good at, um, you're going to be less creative, less happy. And I think about this with my favorite artists, the, the sort of like Lou Reed's or David Bowie's or Neil Young's, like they're constantly challenging us. And sometimes that's not good. I mean, that Rockabilly album of Neil Young's, not good. Uh, but you, you th then you get the, the, you know, second harvest album and you're like, oh my God, like this is incredible. You're out, Dylan's output, like not every one of those albums is great, but it's like the last one was <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, so, but there are people who know that they have to reinvent themselves or they're going to just get the, stuck in the rut or it's going to be greatest hits. It's going to be like Rolling Stones. Right. Right. Yeah. You got to take the chance to, uh, to kind of reinvent yourself. I think you two did a great job at that in the nineties, even though a lot of those albums were not considered some of their best. And by the way, it was Joy Division. I think you were thinking of before, was it not? Uh, no, the, it's not. It's, it's not Michael Joy Division. It's oh, Michael Hutchins. In excess. In excess. In excess. Yeah. Got it. And that yeah. it, if people don't know the story, <laughs> real quickly, uh, uh, Bob Geldof, marriage not going well uh, to his wife, who I think was a, like she hosted like a morning show in England. Uh, she starts dating Michael Hutchins. He is not happy about this and starts basically like terrorizing the couple. Uh, and uh, Hutchins kills himself. And I think she does too. Yeah. So Sir, wow. Sir Bob Geldof, maybe not looking so great later in no not at all and he but still worried about the uh, snow in africa yeah um so uh kelly we have a series of questions i always like to ask people um just again this is the spirit of you know we say uncorking a story is, is about getting the story behind the story yep. which is your story so a few uh, a few questions just to uh, understand who you are a little bit more uh, first one being um you know kelly what were some of your favorite tv shows when you were a kid I still love, and, and I, this was not on the air when I was a kid, cause I'm not that old, but the Dick Van Dyke show holds up um, uh, in a big way. I remember, and this won't be a surprise to anyone, the, the rule of thumb was uh, I could go out on Saturday night and I needed to be home 15 minutes or 20 minutes after Saturday Night Live ended. Uh, cause we would watch that. Um, love me some Hill Street Blues. One of the best, you know, first of all, Stephen Boschko is a master, Yeah. but one of the best opening theme songs of, of any TV show ever, the, just that piano piece. Um, yeah, the, the other best, uh, and I just interviewed Jim Burroughs for the podcast, is the uh, opening theme song for Taxi. Oh, that's good. That's a good one. Man, that's going to be in my head now. Yeah, yeah. And I love, of course, Taxi as well. Um, Saint Elsewhere was a less known no, show with a, I, with a with a young Ed Begley Jr. and Denzel Washington. Denzel Washington, yeah, and uh, yeah, bunch bunch of people. Mark Harmon, young Mark. I Harmon. didn't realize, you know, I saw Mark Harmon, and the first time I, I well, I remember summer school, of course, but um, he was in an episode of Emergency, you know, oh, way God. back in the set, which was one of my all time favorite. Oh, shows, I loved Emergency. But, uh, Raymond, was, Raymond Mantooth and uh, Rand, Randy Randolph Rand, Mantooth and um, Randolph Mantooth. John Ty, um, nice. John Ty. Yeah. Who was in Roadhouse? Uh, fun fact. The Patrick uh, Swayze movie. The Patrick, well, you watch your throat because it might get ripped out. Okay. Um, yes. Yeah, so one and the same. Um, but uh, yeah, Mark Harmon played a, uh, he played like this animal rescue guy. They were trying to do a spinoff. Um, so me and my guitar teacher, Ken Volpe, always talk about this episode because, mm -hmm. you know, they take like a deer or a goat. They take a goat to, to uh, Rampart Hospital. Yeah. And uh, the big doctor's like, $250,000 of medical technology and we can't save the life of one baby goat. And it's just the intensity of which, with which he said that. 
we just cracked up. Like we just uh, so funny, but great show. Big fan of Trixie in that show. Uh, and I love MASH. I mean, I, I think like we're, we're, it was very interesting. Uh, my wife, Ann, this was yesterday, last, last night. Yeah. We're having dinner last night. And she said she was lecturing to her students who she's doing a history of comedy um, and talking about how radio was the first time in humanity where masses, massive amount of people from all over the country or even maybe the world could experience something at the same time and how, how, how mind blowing that was. And then that of course uh, turned to television where you could do that at the same time. And then Anna, as she's teaching this, she's like, oh, we're, we're losing that now. It doesn't exist like in a like no one is yeah. watching the finale of MASH at the same time because everything's streamed. You get it at the Super Bowl, you'll get it at the Oscars. But like this is a fairly major change in terms of how the, the, the magic of experiencing things together that now we've lost because we have these other sort of technological vehicles that are so tailored to us individually. And I think I, I think there's something profound in that loss. Yes, yes, and um, yeah, nice. but you still have it in the theater, right? You still have it in the shows you produce. Yeah, but yeah, you study, have it but... at three hundred people or yeah. three thousand or thirty thousand. But that's a little bit different than fifty million. That's different than War of the Worlds. Yeah, you yeah. No, no more water cooler talk about you know last night's friends. You know, it's uh... yeah. Or, or for me, like West Wing. That that was a big one. Like I remember calling my dad when he was still alive and we would just recount how much we love these West Wing episodes. Talking about who shot JR about that. Yeah, who shot JR? <laughs> did they ever answer who shot JR? It wasn't a no, dream, no. right? That it might have been a dream. Thing. I think that was a different one. Well, um, they did. Who shot him? It was one of the female characters, I think. Miss Ellie? Did Miss Ellie shoot JR? I don't think I, there's, no, don't pin this on Miss Ellie. She had a little too much to, a little too much wild turkey one night and <laughs> Shooting yourself some JR. That another great theme song, though. My parents let us used to, you know, we used to stay up late so we could listen to the Dallas theme song and then it was lights out. But I, oh, uh, what one more I'll say is is uh so on our PBS station, they would have a string of English comedies. So Python, of course, hugely influential. Um, Dave Allen at night, um, the two Ronnies. There's just like a bunch of stuff that like just became so important to me and really led me to like the goons and, and, and other sort of cutting edge British comedy that much of which was happening and developing at the same time, Second City was developing 59 in the 60s and in the 70s. Um, and so really helped form my, my brain when it came to why I like weirder avant-garde comedy. Because Se Second City is like, we're a 300 seat theater in Chicago. We, we, we are not necessarily mainstream or we don't need to be and we don't necessarily want to be like, I'm. I'm fine if you're offended and like don't like what we have to say. Um, that's that's perfectly fine. We try to be responsible with our what what, we're, what with what we're saying, but um, it's not going to be everyone's cup of tea. Yeah. Um, question number two on our yeah. list would be: um, In what ways, if any, has improv or working in improv um, been therapeutic for you? In every way. Um, uh, I mean, we have an improv for social anxiety program. We have an improv for people on the spectrum, improv for Parkinson's, um, you know, and, and so this idea of, I mean, essentially, if you break it really down, improv is human being practice. It's how, you know, and I'm a big believer in 
meditation um, and mindfulness. Uh, but most of us don't live in a world where we have quiet. We live in a world where there's noise. So if you can add in this practice of improvisation, which is social, that involves other people, but still has you be fiercely in the moment and, and, and focused on your partner and listening, all the things we've talked about, um, that is a better way to live. Um, and when I am, um, when I am my best Kelly Leonard, I'm using all that stuff. And when I'm my worst Kelly Leonard, I am doing the opposite. I am not listening. I'm blocking. I'm making assumptions. I'm judging myself. I'm judging others. In improv, you can't, if you're in judgment of yourself or others, you are not successfully improvising. Um, and, and, you know, this especially speaks to this moment that we live in right now, um, which is People don't want to see other people as human if they disagree with them on a political point of view. I could not be more left. I mean, I am as classic uh, liberal. Uh, I grew up in Kenworth, Illinois, which could not have been more Republican. Um, I knew how to talk to those people and they knew how to talk to me and they, we cared for each other. And, and I, I, don't, I don't understand the world right now with regard to, to that, um, with all the cruelty uh, that seems to be happening. So I think you... I think you, uh, and, and I have many friends in the social justice movement um, and uh, all of them agree like a sense of humor and kindness is not a negation of fighting for what's right. It's, it's actually, it's complimentary. Yeah, and you know, comics specifically, I think have come under fire a lot um, because of, you know, I don't want to say their points of view, but some of the jokes that they tell or how they, you know, sort of shape kind of what's going on in, in culture right now. Um, you know, Chappelle came under fire uh, a while ago. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's, Ch Chappelle, I mean, there's, there's a, there's punching up and there's punching down. Um, yeah. uh, there, there's another, I'm forgetting is a British comment who, who uh, comic who has a great bit on this where he's like, you know, who really hasn't suffered enough? the trans community. We should really, <laughs> that those bastards have gotten us off so easy. It's like, what are you doing? Do you know the rate of suicide in this country right now among these communities? It's like, yeah. that's where your attention is going? Like, wow. are you, have you looked out the window? And, and here's the problem with people like Chappelle. Um, there's science to back this up. He's rich. Rich people don't see the world the same way. And they certainly don't see the world uh, the way that a young David Chappelle, who was a a, a person, a, 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 a minority in many different ways. Um, and, and those people see the world in, in very vivid uh, ways because they have to, to stay alive. Um, and I, I think Seinfeld's like this as well. It's like, do not tell me that you can't tour colleges, like update your fucking material. Like, like there is so much edgy comedy out there that is not attacking trans people. There is Fair plenty enough. of edgy comedy. I, I, I feel just really strongly about this. And, and, you know, I, I, I just, there, there is, there's tons of great comedy. Um, and I think it's like my, my friend, Dolly Chug, who's a social scientist says the way she'd like people to think about these spaces is like, they think about their tech. So we have an iPhone, we know it's going to get upgraded and it's going to get upgraded a lot. And we keep upgrading it. Cause that makes sense. Could we just do that when we learn about humans and human behavior and gender and things like that, let's upgrade. And, and if we can think about that, as opposed to like, it's some kind of attack on me because it's different. And that's when someone's going into their lizard brain, by the way, that's when they're going to their fear brain, because it's like, oh, something must be taken away from me. It's like, nothing's, be 
Jerry Seinfeld, you have more money than God. Nothing is being taken away from you. Actually, Seinfeld, that one uh, stand-up special that he did, now it's a few years back, but one of the best lines was like, we both know I don't need to be here. <laughs> Genius. You have just called out the thing that we all know that that's true. Great. Like, that's truth. Let's go from there. All right. Kelly, those those uh, workshops or programs that you mentioned yeah. are those only available on the on the corporate level, or are those available no, to individuals? No, those are those are those are B two C. So you, if you go to the Second City website, we have all those different workshops, and, and many are done virtually, and now some are back in in uh, uh, in person. Great. Uh, just a few more questions as we wrap up here, Kelly. Uh, one being, um, thinking back to the uh, the book that you pitched after that airplane ride where you kind of bullshitted it uh, yes. most of the way, but uh, what lesson about um, writing or publishing do you feel like you learned the hard way as a result of that experience? Oh, all right. So writing's hard, um, uh, but it it the here's here's the thing that is hardest about it is procrastination, not the actual writing itself. You have to you have to understand you're writing a shitty first draft. So just write, just write, just write, just write. Every day, if you dedicate yourself to like five pages. Or, or whatever you look at your calendar, do it. I don't care if it's terrible. Um, and, and this is a thing that my wife teaches her comedy students, which is like, if you want to be successful in this business, you have to be a content machine. And that means it could be scenes, it could be plays, it could be jokes, it could be bits on TikTok, whatever it is. So you better have your book, your blank book around where you're writing down your stuff because everyone from Adam McKay to Tina Fey that we've worked with, that's what they do. They observe human behavior and then they translate it into a, a, an incredible amount of, of comedy or in the case of Adam, you know, taking that leap to doing, you know, Oscar winning films. Uh, but it's still rooted in, in that base of like, I need to be paying attention um, and, and find the truth or what's interesting in this because if it shows up in my work later, that's gonna be incredible. So a real dedication to, to practice and, and craft will come later, um, hopefully. Uh, but yeah, just the act of writing is, is I think, revolutionary enough. Yeah, I mean, it, you, know, you mentioned Adam McKay. I mean, talk about um, versatility, yeah. you know, from, from you know, uh, Anchorman <laughs> to, to like- uh, Succession. You know, the big, to Succession and, and The Big Short. Um, the Big don't Short, look, right, and, right. And, and, and Don't, don't look, look Up, up. What, which is, uh, I, I love Don't Look Up. I thought that was I'd like to too. I, th I, th I found that like really funny and weird and- Leo was great. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. That, that, and, and I understand, look, there's lots of reasons. It, art is, is so contextual. I mean, and, and, and for different people, different things hit. And I get that. We, you never, you're not going to please all the people all the time. But I think the thing is, Adam takes chances. And to our earlier point of, he could, if he had just stayed doing the very dumb, but very smart, but very dumb Will Ferrell movies, uh, I don't think he would have been as happy as he is. And he is, he's, he's like, I talk to Adam all the time. He's in a great space. Yeah. Uh, two more. And this one's near and dear to my heart because I spent um, last week getting to know my inner child. But uh, Kelly, how do you feed and nurture your inner child? Oh, I don't think, I don't think I frame it that way because I don't think, I don't know that I believe in an inner child. I'm just gonna be honest with you. But I, but I know the spirit of the question. Um, and um, therapy, exercise, nature, awe, music, poetry, literature, um, things that 
bring me purposeful joy and all those things are, you know, connecting with other, other humans. I, I've learned to do a thing. So, so one of the, one of the things we learned about um, social science uh, from Nick Epley was that he, he once said like, Hey, if you're in a bad mood and you want to get out of that bad mood, do something nice for someone. So I was, this is last week or two weeks ago. I had this, this, I, I, I was going to Sonoma and I was flying to the Sonoma airport. And so I had a flight from Chicago to Phoenix and then I had a quick window to switch around. Our flight got delayed and there was no way I was going to make it. So then I had to get rebooked into San Francisco. It was all big hassle. We get on the plane to go to Phoenix and we're like on the ground. It's hot as hell. It's terrible. And then a young woman with her infant daughter sits in the center seat next to me. I'm on the aisle and the daughter begins to shriek and then kick and she's kicking me and all this stuff. And I am like, how am I? Like, this is a long flight. What am I going to do? And I was like, I turned to her and I said, look, I'm a dad. Uh, I, I have, have a son. I had a daughter who did this uh, on, on flights. Here's the thing. You are not going to apologize to me. If she kicks me, does anything, it doesn't matter. I'm good. I'm just here to like help you get through this and you do the same. And it was like, you could just see like her just sort of go on like this. And the baby ended up stopping crying and we chatted and it was like, like that was such an easy thing for me to do for her. And guess what? It actually made me feel better. Yeah. And you know, I, I might venture to guess, although I'm not a medical doctor, um, but her calming down because of what you said to her might've helped her child calm yeah. down as well. Cause her, her child didn't feel that anxiety in her. Sure. Exactly, Cause kids pick up on that yeah. for sure. Yeah. 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 Interesting. I've um, had parents hand me drink tickets. <laughs> that helps too. <laughs> Well, that's, another, always, that's another way to go. It's a different tactic. Yeah. Yeah. Always, always bribe Laura with a fancy cocktail. Mm-hmm. Um, and five uh, somewhere. last one up, then I'll turn over to Laura, um, which uh, would be if it, we're going to Marty McFly this one, if you could go back in time and whisper um, some words of advice into your younger self, Kelly, what would you tell your younger self? Oh, stop thinking about yourself. Like everyone else is thinking about themselves. Their eyes are not on you. Well, there's a paradox there because your older self is thinking about his younger self. So if, if you're not thinking about yourself, then you're not giving yourself any advice. I think I've just killed myself. <laughs> I think what we just discovered is I, it's that time continuum that we're not supposed to go into. Um, uh, when, when I, so uh, I became producer of Second City in 1992, which is only four years after I was a dishwasher. Uh, not everyone was thrilled with this decision. Uh, and there was a, a particular th- uh, theater company in town, a number of whose members thought that they deserved to be hired at Second City and I did not hire them. Uh, For that and other reasons, they wrote a show called Second City Doesn't Want Me. Um, And my dad, as a theater reviewer, went to review it. And the character that I was, you had to sleep with to get hired. That was basically the the premise of that, which was not ever my rap. I I, I was married and then I was married to someone else and there was nothing in between. And like, but I remember my dad saying to me, "Um, you're upset about this. I go, yeah. And he goes, do you do you care about their, you, do you respect the opinion of these people? And I go, no. And he goes, then why should you care? And I'm like, oh my God, how do you do that? Like, and I didn't, I didn't have the practice to be able to do that. I think I do now, uh, but, but again, like that's age and a, a whole bunch of other stuff. But if somehow as a young person, I could try to just take the spotlight off of me thinking about myself, I think I would have had a much better time um, not that I had a bad time, but I think I would have had way less anxiety, early stage, early life anxiety. 
Yeah. Very cool. Laura, I want to pump, pump, uh, punt it over to you. Uh, sure, what do you have for Kelly? Yeah. Kelly, um, I know there's people out there who like to be funny or think they're always funny or need to be funny. Uh-huh. What makes a person funny from your perspective since you've been around so many funny people for so sure. many years? So the title of my wife's book that she's writing right now for Northwestern University Press is called Funnier. And what it has based on is at the open houses, often the dads will come up and say, are you going to make my daughter or son funny? And she goes, I can't make them funny. I can make them funnier. So I can find what is unique about their voice and give them tools, skills, practices for them to amp that up as high as it can go. That doesn't mean they're going to be Tina Fey, who she taught. Um, and it doesn't mean it's going to be like Carl, the accountant, you know, who's only going to get this way. So you, you can, anyone can sort of enhance their, their voice. And part of that is, is this thing that we talked about before, which is you're going to have to embrace the, the thing that's, that's like not great about you. So, and that can change at any given, given time. So the big joke now at second city, of course, is, you know, I was the youngest producer in the history of second city and I'm now the oldest guy in the, you know, on the block. Um, and so my friend Abby is constantly saying, well, a man of your age might have this consideration, right? In conversation. So it's like, and, and it is not ageist in the sense that it is a, it is a lovely recognition of what she knows is my thing. And I will, and I will find her thing as, as well at different times. I'm not gonna share it here. Uh, but uh, uh, so, so it's sort of like, what is funny about you at any given time, any given context? And then the tricky part is, real funny people are skating the line all the time. Like I happen to love Dave Chappelle's work other than that other stuff. And that, and, and that is because he skated the line in like the best possible way. Like Carlin, you mentioned earlier, like didn't start out like that as a comic. He was a very straight comic, um, mother-in-law jokes, and then found this other thing, Richard Pryor, just uh, like the best. So I, I just think, you know, you, and, and here's the other thing is like, it, go take a class. There are classes in stand-up, there's classes in improv, there's places where other people are doing this, find the community. And if you, you're gonna know, you're gonna know, you're gonna know in short order whether you've got a chance at, at doing this thing in a professional way. And even if you just wanna get funnier, like that's, that's, where, that's where the funny, go where the funny people are. Yeah, so the fathers that were asking, are you going to make my, my son or daughter funny? Are, are those the ones that were happy that their kids went into performance arts? Or yes. <laughs> Are they? Uh, yeah, because okay. well, good one for of, them. <laughs> yeah, one of them was George Lopez, and it was his daughter. Oh wow! Oh, jeez, yeah. cool. And they've got a series coming out together. So, fantastic. Hopefully that worked. Yeah. My well, I do have an answer to uh, the the burning question that we left open. Um, Sue Ellen's sister, Kristen, shot Jr. She was also the mother of Christopher, Bobby, and Pam's adopted son. So wow. there you have it. Oh, there you have it. I can wow my friends at parties now with all of that. Cool. Um, and uh, if any attendees are uh, interested, the, the Q&A module is still open, um, so uh, you can feel free to ask a question. But Kelly, um, I, I think this has been a great conversation. I really enjoyed talking to you, um, and uh, it's been fun. Um, any uh, website, social media you want to share with uh, yeah. the listeners of Uncorking Story? Yeah, so secondcity.com second uh, and, and uh, Second City, uh, and, and you'll, you'll see there's corporate stuff, there's training center in the theaters. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter at KL Second City. Um, th those pr primary LinkedIn and Twitter is where I'm doing the bulk of, of, of that stuff. I'm on Instagram, but I tend to post 
on Instagram, uh, just cocktails I've made uh, or meals my wife has cooked. Oh, well, so, I must follow you on Instagram then. Yeah. Good cocktail I'm in. I so So at the start of COVID, she, my wife was always a good cook. She became an excellent cook. And, and she also made the cocktails. And at a certain point, she's like, this is not fair. I'm doing both of these things. And, and so it shifted. And then I started doing it. And then now I'm obsessed of like, there's different kinds of vermouth. There's different kinds of vermouths I can use. All right. And bitters and other stuff. So there's a whole, yeah, the co- cocktail world is fun, I think. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Cocktails with Kelly next time we're in Chicago. There we go. Excellent. <laughs> I, we will do it. Absolutely. All right. Laura, uh, anything to plug for you? No plugs here. No plugs. <laughs> no plugs. Here. I've no got plugs uh, here. hair plugs. No, I'm just kidding. Um, all right. Well, Kelly, thank you so much. Been a fun conversation. All the best to you. Thanks so much, Mike and Laura. Take care. Have a good Thanks, night. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.